We find in this text now dinner is over. Abraham had prepared a meal for the three visitors that had come to meet him. We remember if you uh, were here a couple weeks ago that two of those visitors were angels and the third was the Lord God. And as they are about uh, to go, the two angels make their way down to Sodom. But the third, which is the Lord, stays behind to chat with Abraham. Before he talks with Abraham, the Lord engages in a little bit of self-talk, which is fascinating. I know it's an anthropomorphism, but the Bible presents it as God speaking to himself, having a discussion with himself, which is not unusual in the Bible. We find this in a few different places. But he asks himself whether or not he can take Abraham into his confidence. He asks himself whether or not this is an important enough an issue to involve Abraham and get Abraham's input into what he's about to do. And I think to myself, well, why invite Abraham into the conversation at all? Will it make a difference? Will Abraham's intercession and his interaction with the Lord make a difference? As we think about this, well, there's one reason at least that God invites him into this conversation. It's because that's what friends do. Friends talk with one another about their thinking, about what they're planning. In fact, Jesus mentioned this, uh, and he talked about this to his disciples. He said, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. And so friendship is an opportunity to talk about plans and to talk about things that we're thinking. And here God is doing that with Abraham. And we know in a few places in scripture, Abraham is called a friend of God. But there's an explicit reason given in the text why God talks to Abraham beyond friendship. And that is because of Abraham's unique place and calling in, in the wisdom of God. Abraham has been chosen, but he's been also given a unique status. He will be the father of a great nation. And so the Lord, because he has chosen him, wants to bring him into the loop, so to speak, of how he works and of what he expects of Abraham with his family that is to come from him. And in fact, the Lord has said in this chapter that through Abraham, blessing will come to all the nations. He will be a channel of blessing through which he will accomplish um, the, the blessing of God uh, on people all around the world. And it's fascinating to me that God says that this will come about through a righteous people. That as Abraham trains up his children and then those, his descendants that come after him in the way of the Lord, which is the way of righteousness, that as they live righteously in the world and the places which God has directed them, they will bring blessing to those that are around him. Here are just a few things that we don't have time to talk about, which I throw out your way for you to muse on maybe later in the day or throughout the week, is first simply election. That God has chosen Abraham. It's not something that Abraham kind of volunteered for. It's not something that Abraham filled a resume out for and applied for a position. Abraham was a pagan. He was a, a worshiper of foreign gods. And God, in his grace and his mercy, called him, chose him to be one of his children and to be the father of many nations. He was not chosen because of his name. He was not chosen for his righteousness. He was not chosen because of the family he was raised in. He was simply chosen because of God's great love and God's plan and intention for him. But as with all things, we wrestle with election. Sometimes we wonder with election, well, does that mean that I can do what I want? Does that mean because God has chosen me that I can live how I want and I'm safe and I'm secure? Well, the scripture makes it very clear that Abraham was chosen to sanctification. The two always go hand in hand. 
God never chooses us and then leaves us in our sins or leaves us as sinful children. We are not chosen so that we can do that. We are chosen rather to grow in righteousness, to put off sin and to put on the things that are pleasing to God. We are chosen to walk in the way of the Lord. That's what Abraham is called to do. He has been chosen by God and then he is to teach his children and those that come after him to walk in the ways of the Lord. So election always means election to God's moral agenda in our lives. And if we are walking as children of Abraham, then our goal, if we are blessed with children, our goal with those in the families in which we live is to teach them and to model and to um, put forward to people to walk in the way of the Lord, to be characterized by righteousness. As the verse 19 says here, that he is to raise up the children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. This is really the central goal of parenting. It's the central goal that we have as we interact with people is to more and more put forward and to walk in the ways of the Lord and to um, encourage people to walk in the ways of the Lord. The way of the Lord is always a blessed way. In fact, even in Psalm 1, we talk about the one that is um, uh, characterized by walking in the way of the Lord. One of the final things before we actually move into the text or move into the intercession part of this text and we'll come to it later, it is, that, it is that through righteousness, as people walk in the way of the Lord, that we bring blessing to those that are around us. By us walking in the way of the Lord and doing what is right and acting justly, we bring blessing to those in the world around us. Some of you are probably old enough to remember a hymn that we used to sing, Make Me a Blessing to Someone Today. And I don't think there's any more succinct way that we can be a blessing to those around us than by walking in the way of the Lord, by living righteous lives, by doing what is right and just in the places that we find ourselves as, as uh, parents to walk and to live righteously before our spouses and our children, as those who work in settings where there are ungodly to live righteously and to do justice, to in our workplaces and in our schools and in our neighborhood, to be characterized by those that walk in the way of the Lord. God says that is one of the chief ways in which the nations of the world will be blessed as the people of God walk in righteousness. What did the prophet say in the book of Micah? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. And so these are just a few of the things that God was mulling over as he was determining whether or not to bring Abraham into his confidence and open the door to Abraham to learn more about righteousness and mercy and justice. And the Lord continues to do that today in our lives and in our world, in various situations to cause us to think about righteousness and to think about the way of righteousness and justice. We're certainly not Abraham, and our contexts are very different from Abraham. But we still have a similar privilege that Abraham have had, and that is to stand before the Lord on behalf of others. So as we look at this text, there's a few things, just three things that I was mulling over and um, uh, working through as I thought about what God has said here. Sometimes God nudges us to prayer. 
I don't know if you've ever experienced that in your life. God, God doesn't just drop something before you. He brings you into a situation where you engage with him or you embrace with him. The Lord has told Abraham about the reason for his visit. It's something that he has heard. God is, and it's not saying that God, if he hadn't heard this, he wouldn't know. It's a way of us understanding the way God works. But he says in the text, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is immense. And their sin is extremely serious. Now one wonders if that outcry has reached heaven, if it also hasn't reached Abraham as he settles in the area of Mamre. I don't think this was a surprise to Abraham of what was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah and the sins of the plains. News of sin travels. News of places of sin travels. Think of some of the cities in the world today that are known for sinfulness. I won't mention any of their names lest I get in trouble, but there are cities in Europe, there are cities in Asia, there are cities in America, there are cities in Canada, there are places that are just known for their sin and their sinfulness. And as we, God is talking about this with the place of Gomorrah, the outcry has come up to him. It could be the outcry of the victims who have been suffering incredible injustice. Their cries of pain have reached the throne of God. And that is very true. God hears the cries of those who suffer to the least and to the greatest. But the outcry could also be of those who have witnessed such distressful circumstances. And from them come pleas for justice and for vengeance. They go up before the Lord and they say, Oh God, will you not act? Will you not stem the tide of violence and of wickedness that is taking place in this city and this neighborhood? And so this is what God does. The fury of Sodom's sin is described as great and grievous. It's, it's this report that brings God down to investigate. And the text says, I will go down and see what, if what they have done justifies the cry that has come up to me. And if not, I will find out. It's really encouraging to, to realize that about God and as, as it instructs us about God's ways, that God's response to sin is not according to secondhand reports. God doesn't just sort of sit in heaven and, and have people coming in and, and saying, well, God, this is going on here and this is going on there and, and not understand the full truth of it himself. He hears the reports and he goes down to investigate for himself. God doesn't act on hearsay. God doesn't respond with knee-jerk reactions. God knows with intimate detail what is going on in the places in which we live and the hearts and minds of the people which, which surround us. And we think about that down the road with the final judgment that is to come. We will be judged for every careless word that we say. There are books, according to Revelation 20, that have written down every act and every deed that we have done. God knows exactly what is going on in his world and in our lives. And so it's like God says to Abraham, so Abraham, this is what I'm hearing. This is what I, is going on um, in the city. This is why I've actually come down for a visit. I've, I've heard about stuff going on in Sodom in the city of the plains, and I just want to go check it out. And it's like with those words, God is inviting Abraham into a conversation. It's like he's, he's almost baiting Abraham, so to speak, to respond and or say, say something. He's wanting to draw Abraham into a conversation or a discussion, actually to pray. It's as if God was hinting to Abraham, Abraham, this is why I'm coming down. Now, what would you do? Or what do you think we should do? And it works. 
Because we read how the two angels, the two men, went on their way down to Sodom. But notice what it says of Abraham. Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Another text says, and Abraham stepped forward. It's like he took the bait. God had said, this is what I'm doing here. And Abraham couldn't resist responding to the nudges of God. And he steps forward. And God opens a door to Abraham for a conversation which Abraham enters into. There's a similar instance in the life of Moses. Some, many of you would be familiar with this if you know your Bibles at all. There's a account where uh, Moses has gone up to the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments. And he's gone for a long time. And the people below in the valley think, well, he must be dead. And so they make a golden calf and they start worshiping this calf and engage in all kinds of sin. They've turned their back on God. And as Moses is up on the mountain with uh, God, God knows what is going on back in camp. And he tells this to Moses. He says, Moses, this is what's going on down there. This is what I'm going to do. And it's like he opens a door to a conversation for Moses. And Moses enters into that conversation. This is what the text says. The Lord said to Moses, go down. For your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They've made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. It's like God is opening the door to Moses to respond. And what does Moses do? It says, but Moses implored the Lord and said. It's like God invited Moses into this conversation, into this opportunity to intercede on the behalf of Israel. In fact, the Psalm, uh, Psalm, Psalm 106 says this, Therefore, the Lord said he would not destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn his wrath away from destroying them. So it's just a sort of an example, that, another example of how God sometimes exposes us to something, opens up a door in our minds, and we just can't resist responding. We can't resist getting involved in the situation. It's what God wants to do. He wants, us to draw, he wants to draw us in to an opportunity to intercede. He does this in so many different ways. I was uh, thinking about an instance in the life of my grandfather. He was a pioneer missionary in Tibet. And there was a time in his life when he was actually in significant danger. There had been a death council that had uh, passed an execution order on him and on a couple of his uh, uh, people that traveled with him, a couple of the Tibetans that traveled with him. And in fact, they were minutes away from being beheaded. And as this was going on, God was working in a lady's heart in Oregon, Washington. And she was a woman of prayer in Olympia, Washington. And it's amazing the way God sometimes dramatically nudges us to prayer. In a little book on my grandfather, it says, Across the ocean in Olympia, Washington, the old prayer warrior stirred in her sleep. Suddenly, she was awake for a strange sense of urgency came over her. Immediately, she asked God to show her the cause. The answer came in such a forceful manner that she would never forget it the rest of her life. God granted her a vision. It was unbelievable, but very real. She saw a group of men gathered together in what resembled a tent. 
They were dressed in long robes of skin or heavy cloth. Most of them had a sword tucked in their girdles. More imposing than the rest was a man who sat on a low platform. At his side stood three men with swords drawn as if ready to use. On the ground sat three other men, two of whom looked like the others, but the third was a lighter complexion and wore a leather jacket and trousers. The scene was indeed strange to behold. She studied the one intently wondering who he was. Suddenly she recognized him as a missionary she had heard speak in a church service. He was going to Tibet, the land for which she had been praying. The old woman had listened as the young missionary told of the hardships and the dangers he would counter in the far-off land. But she could not remember his name. It was then that the Holy Spirit whispered to her, Pray for Mr. Plymeyer. His life is in great danger. Immediately she fell on her knees to pray. She prayed as only those who live in vital contact with God can. The vision faded, but the woman's effectual, fervent praying persisted. Sometime later, my grandfather received a letter from this lady sharing her experience. And she shared with him about being woken in the night, as I've just read, and about the vision of the situation, and described the scene in great deal, and how she had prayed. My grandfather confirmed the exact time and place and rejoiced in God's provision of an intercessor. This is the sort of the last summary of that in Olympia, Washington, the elder woman whose prayer had stormed the throne of grace through these dark moments received assurance that her petitions had been answered. Months later, Mr. Plymeyer received a letter from her telling of her experience in prayer. She described the vision in detail, even enclosing a rough drawing of what she had seen. The chief, the guards, the prisoners, each stationed as he had actually appeared, together with a description of each person's clothing. Mr. Plymeyer compared the time and discovered to his amazement that his trial was proceeding at the exact hour when the prayer warrior was interceding for him across the ocean. As for her rough sketch, he said, if a photographer had been present, he could not have made a more accurate picture of the situation. Sometimes God uses dramatic means to draw us or to nudge us to prayer. Some of you may have experienced that where God awakens you in the night and gives you a sense of urgency, even a picture of an opportunity to pray. But very often, it's not as dramatic as that. You and I know that. Sometimes we're just made aware of a situation through a conversation or through an email or through a, a, a coffee that we're having with something. And God makes us aware of something. And through that awareness, he draws us into intercession. He, he spurs us to get on our knees and pray. I was thinking that we do the same thing. We, we draw people into conversations with ourselves. There are times when I invite Kathy into conversations. It's a little bit sneaky, but I do that. For instance, when I want to buy something like a bike, I might have started the conversation with something like, I was thinking about bikes, you know. I've just been looking at them lately. And now I'm hoping that she takes the bait. And then I go, oh yeah, she does. When she says, well, what were you looking at bikes for? And it's like I've drawn her into the conversation. This is what God so often does with us. He presents a situation to us. He presents a need to us in such a way that he draws us in to respond to it. And so God drew Abraham into praying for Sodom and actually for the righteous there. The second thing I was thinking about in here is what characteristic of God anchors your praying? I don't know if you ever think that through. What is it that when you come before God, what characteristic of God, what attribute of God anchors your praying? When you talk to God, 
what particular attribute governs your conversation with him? I was thinking about this in different ways. Sometimes people come before God and they say, God, if you are really there. They really haven't settled on whether or not God really exists or not. They're unsure of that. Or some people might say, well, God, if you can really hear me. They're, they're uncertain if God is, is, is alive, if God is attentive to their situation. Sometimes it's people's relationship with God as Father. And so often they will begin their prayers, Father. And there's all sorts of things that flood into their mind as the image of God, our Father, uh, guides their praying. Sometimes it's, God, you are holy. And it's the holiness of God that anchors our prayer. It's that characteristic of God that, that then gives context to our prayer. You know, the longer that you walk with God, the more you will find that characteristics or attributes or even a single characteristic of God will be something that stabilizes or anchors your praying. I was reading in Peter the other day, may grace and peace be multiplied to you through the knowledge of God. In other words, the more we know God, the greater our understanding of who God is and how God acts. We have peace and, and we have uh, um, grace that is multiplied in our hearts. I think for me in the last number of months, in fact the last number of years, probably the thing that has anchored my prayer the most after a confidence that God is real, that he exists, is that in the background of my praying is the fact that God is the maker of heaven and earth. I've come to realize that there's no greater attribute of God. There's no, there's no greater way to state the power and the might and the imagination and the control of God than to acknowledge that he has made the heavens and the earth and the seas and everything that's in it. And I often in my own prayer life begin as the, 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 the people in Acts chapter 4 begin. Sovereign God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in it. For me, when I fill my head with that characteristic of God or that picture of God, there's nothing that God cannot do. There's nothing that God doesn't know. There's nothing that is greater than God's power. And so again, I, I say, what is it that anchors your prayer or that, that characterizes your praying about God? Listen to Abraham's prayer. What does he assume about God? He says this, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose 50 righteous are within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare is the wicked fare. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of the earth do what is just? You see what is framing Abraham's prayer? It's that God is righteous. It's that God is just. His primary focus, I believe, is, is on the righteous on the city and the dilemma that has been raised in his heart when God is saying, I'm going to go and destroy that city. He's saying, well, if you're a righteous God, how can you destroy the righteous with the wicked? That's not a just thing to do. Abraham is trying to make a case for what is right, and in doing so, he assumes that he's dealing with a righteous God. It's so important to, to know who it is that you're praying to when you pray. And I, I think that righteousness is assumed because after all, Abraham had been commanded that he was to command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. 
The way of the Lord was the way of righteousness and justice. And if the Lord's righteousness was truly uncertain in Abraham's mind, then the discussion which follows makes no sense. It's because the Lord acts righteously that Abraham was perplexed at what God was proposing to do. To not discriminate between the righteous and the wicked. And so Abraham's whole conversation with God is predicated on the assumption that God is righteous. It's fascinating to me that obviously though our understanding of the the, the, the fullness of the characteristics of God is so, so small. For Abraham, as he worked through this dilemma, it presented him with, with only two polar opposites. On the one hand, if the cities were destroyed and there were righteous in them, then God would sweep away the righteous with the wicked and the innocent would suffer. How could a righteous God do that? But on the other hand, if the cities were not destroyed, and if God would spare the wicked in order to save the righteous, then the guilty would escape justice and punishment. How could that be righteous? And so Abraham's whole conversation with God was predicated on the belief that God was righteous. When we come to next week in Genesis chapter 19, we'll find that God is just so bigger than what we can ever imagine. Because he pulls the righteous out of the city, saves the righteous at the same time, then punishes the wicked in the city. And then unexpectedly, when Lot is not wanting to flee as far as he should go, he says, well, can I go to this city that God had intended to destroy? And God, in his grace and mercy, preserves Zohar from the judgment that Sodom and Gomorrah and their cities experienced. So there's a great deal that Abraham would come to know about the righteousness of God. But at this point, at least he assumed in his intercession that God would act righteously. That's important. Shall not the judge of the earth do what is right? This is what Abraham holds God to. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked. Far be it from you. In other words, God, you couldn't possibly do such a thing. The character of God matters. And the character of your God determines your approach and your requests. What do you assume about God when you go before him? Last week, Pastor Barry spoke about the peace of God. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Sometimes we need to come before God in prayer, assuming that while our lives may be chaotic and our thinking may be chaotic, God is not a God of chaos. He is a God of peace. And his peace can be our peace. Or in another place it said, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Sometimes we come before God and that's what we hang on to. That's what we cling to as we pray for ourselves and others. But God, you are a God of grace and mercy. You are a God who provides escapes for people in trouble. You are a God who saves people and delivers people from difficult situations. I was thinking about this. How would you approach a God of wood and stone that hangs on your wall or sits on your shelf? 
Well, what characteristic would you assume about that God that then would, would, would give context to your worship and your praying? How would you approach a God who, who you put food before every day and every night you have to go and dump that food in the garbage and in the morning put new food before? What characteristic would you assume about that God and his ability or her ability to help? How would you approach a God who accepts the sacrifice of children? What would you assume about that God as you went before that God with your needs or your concerns? What would you assume about a God who you worship but who leaves you in worse condition than when you first came to him? Or how would you approach a God of your own making? What would you assume about such a God? See, Abraham, as he comes before the Lord, as he's been drawn into prayer with God, he assumes, he stands on the reality that God is a righteous God. And if we are children of Abraham, and if we are children of God, this is the same God we pray to as well. Thirdly, and lastly, I think this text tells us that our presence matters to the ungodly. And by that, our presence, I mean the presence of the righteous matters to the ungodly. I was thinking about this. Intercession is not only about what you say to God. It's about how you live for God among the unsaved. In other words, intercession is not just about words. Intercession is about how we live. There are times, it would seem, and the scripture seems to bear this out, where the presence of the righteous protects the ungodly from the judgment of God. You might ask, who are the righteous? Well, in the broadest sense of the term, the righteous are all God's children. Through Christ, we are the righteous ones of God. But I'm thinking here in this text more of how are the righteous characterized than the fact that they are righteous. For example, a lawyer approached Jesus and asked, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so we will see there that the righteous are characterized by obedience to God's commands, by loving God first with everything that they have, and then secondly, loving their neighbor as their self. Peter describes it this way. Now finally, all of you should be like-minded and sympathetic, should love believers, be compassionate and humble, not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, giving a blessing since you were all called for this, so that you can inherit a blessing. For the one who wants to love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil, his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do what is good. He must seek peace and pursue it because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and he hears, his ears are open to the request. But the face of the Lord is against those who do what is evil. And finally, Paul, in a very succinct way, answers it this way. The Lord knows who are his. Everyone who names the name of the Lord must turn away from unrighteousness. And so as I'm thinking about righteousness here, I'm thinking about the acts of righteousness, the way that we live and the things that we do, the obedience. Righteousness is not something that we do behind closed doors. It's something that we do everywhere. And it's not only something that we 
uh, that we are, but it's something that we do. I want to just read a little bit of a quote here from one of the commentators I was reading. He says, The descending math of Abraham's prayer from 50 down to 10 is not a piece of human manipulation. Rather, as one says, Abraham is exploring. He's feeling his way to see how far mercy might go, even in the service of justice. And in light of the whole Sodom story, this countdown process underscores Yahweh's justice in destroying Sodom. He would not spare it for ten righteous, yet he did destroy it because ten were not found. But the principle operating in and with and behind Abraham's intercession seems to be that the presence of God's people benefits the wicked in this age. For the presence of the righteous may hold off or postpone judgment on the wicked. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. It's a considerable incentive for us to walk in the way of the Lord. It's considerable incentive for us to, to teach our children to walk in the way of the Lord, to encourage our grandchildren to walk in the way of the Lord. Because living a godly life matters. It matters to your unsaved children. It matters to your unsaved grandchildren. It matters to your unsaved spouse. It matters to your workmates in the place where you work who don't know the Lord yet. It matters to our city. There's lots of scriptures that bear this out. Proverbs 14.26 says, fear, The fear of the Lord is a stronghold, a refuge for a man's children. In other words, his children find refuge in his relationship with the Lord. Some of you may recall what Jeremiah writes to those who are exiled into Babylon. This is what the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, says to all the exiles I deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and Give your daughters to men in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there, do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city I have deported you to. Pray for the Lord on its behalf, for when it has prosperity, you will have prosperity. Or one in Corinthians, which we know, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, a brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. But how do you know, not know, wife, whether or not you will save your husband? Or how do you not know, husband, whether or not you will save your wife? See, there's a point, I think, that God is making and that is revealed in Abraham's intercession here. That if there were ten righteous... In the city of Sodom, in this particular instance, God would have spared the city from the judgment that he had intended for it. This is not a small point for us to think about. It really is this, that your presence matters to the ungodly. Don't ever think that a covenant life, a being in a relationship with God, lacks importance. Or that living a godly life in this age doesn't matter. At least from this text, it demonstrates to us that the proximity of the godly or the righteous to the unrighteous matters greatly to them. As I was wrestling through this text and 
Coming to the conclusion, you may be thinking the same thing. It's really not so much a, a text about what we should do. As many of the texts of Scripture are things that we should do and ways that we should change our life, but it's more so some things that we should think about. So maybe take some time today to think about the various ways in which God has or is or will nudge you into prayer. Think about the ways that God invites you into conversations with you to to stand before him, to step into his presence and intercede for others because God has drawn you into a situation and made it known to you. Think about what characteristic of God frames your praying. Or maybe put another way, when you go to God in prayer, have in your heart and mind an attribute of God or characteristic of God, a grid through which you make your request known to God. Don't just go with empty thoughts about God, but go specifically thinking about God's sovereignty or God's righteousness or God's holiness or God's mercy or God's grace. And thirdly, think about how your righteous life or how your godly life may matter to those around you who don't yet know God. How through your righteousness and your godliness you may be preserving them or protecting them for a time being from the judgment of God upon their wickedness. May God help us to think these things through so that we might glorify him in the places in which we live. Father, we come before you today, thankful for your word. And I pray, Father, as we wrestle through uh, a text like this, and maybe specifically this morning as we think through a text like this, that you will help us to learn a little bit about you and your ways, that you will help us to work out in our hearts and our minds your way with us and your way with the people in the world. Father, I pray that you might encourage many of us to stand before you as Abraham did, to take the bait, so to speak, and to wrestle issues to the ground with you, things that you reveal to us, things that you expose to us, people's needs that you'd bring to our attention. May that draw us into intercession, Father, for them. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.